0: Well, I feel the need to begin our sermon this morning with what you might call a little bit of a caveat or a bit of an explanatory note about the sermon. And that is to say, we're going to be looking at a passage in Scripture that will give us a chance to have some really clear insight into the character of Christ. Here's the caveat. I want you to know that this sermon was pretty much entirely written before the events of this past weekend transpired in Ottawa. Now, the reason it's important for you to have that bit of a caveat is there might be times when you would otherwise have been asking yourself, is he kind of subtly talking about what happened there? And is he taking sides? Is he taking aim at anybody? And the answer to that is quite flatly, no, not at all. This sermon aims to be a faithful exposition of John chapter 18, It does not aim to take anyone's side other than the side of the Lord and to lift high the name of Jesus. And it doesn't aim to take, uh, doesn't try to take aim at anyone in particular other than to take aim at all of us as God's word so frequently does. So I just have a couple of maybe words of encouragement for you. Don't take pieces of this passage and then kind of appropriate them for your own political purposes. That just wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be helpful to you. It wouldn't do any of God's good work that He wants to do in us through it. Instead, do a couple of things. Don't apply it to the other. Ask God to help you apply it to your own life and to correct you and encourage you and rebuke you as necessary. necessary. And then further, don't apply it too narrowly. It would be really easy to take what we see in John 18 and just apply it to what's going on over these last few weeks in our own country. This applies to all of life, and it's got things to say about all kinds of our actions and our interactions, and so I want to encourage you to do those things. That sound fair enough? Good? Okay, with that in mind, let's then get underway. Have you ever heard the saying that nothing's ever come out of a person that wasn't in there to begin with? You heard that one before? Nothing's ever come out of a person that wasn't in there to begin with. It's sort of a way of trying to explain that, well, sometimes we might want to blame our bad behaviors on external things and things that have happened to us. In reality, our attitudes and behaviors are dictated by internal things and what's going on within us, aren't they? So you kind of get how this goes. Most of the time, we keep the not-so-pretty parts of ourselves, the ugly parts, pretty well under wraps, and then somebody cuts us off in traffic, (laughs) or maybe we find out that somebody has slandered us behind our back, or someone infringes on our rights, and all of a sudden, things start coming out of us that later we look at and we say, oh, I'm ashamed by my own behavior. Where did that come from? Well, it didn't come from outside of us, that's for sure. It came from within, didn't it? And it's at moments like that when we're slighted or under attack or facing intense pressure that the kind of thing that comes out of us can really tell us something about the quality of our character. Nothing ever comes out of a person that wasn't in there to begin with, and when the pressure cooker of life gets turned up, the character that gets squeezed out can be telling. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 18, and we're going to have a time to see a chance to see a time in Jesus' life when the pressure cooker got turned up to the max. I'm talking about that fateful night in the garden of Gethsemane. That night when some of the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus sweat like drops of blood, he was in such agony. The night when he was betrayed by one of his closest companions. The night when a crowd with torches and weapons came and took him away. The night when he knew full well they were taking him away to face an absolutely unfair trial and then be tortured and finally be executed by crucifixion. Now that means if there was ever a time In the life of Jesus, when we could look at his life and say, wow, what happens? What spills out of him or gets squeezed out of him when the pressure cooker gets turned up? What spills out of him when he's deeply wounded? It would be this night, wouldn't it? John chapter 18 in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's arrested. Here's our big idea for this morning. It's that Jesus' arrest gives us a clear window into the character of Christ we're going to focus in on three elements of his character that rise to the surface in John chapter 18. And what you're going to see there is that his character is so extraordinary, so beautiful, that it's unlike anything, that it makes him both worthy of our worship and worth turning to and saying, wow, I want to be conformed to that kind of character. That's really my prayer for you and for me this morning. That we together would look at this character of Jesus in John 18, and that we, it would move us to love him more deeply and worship him more deeply, and that it would move us to turn to him and say, Jesus, please form more of your character in me. So this morning we're in John 18, we're looking at, this is Jesus' character under pressure. Let me pray for us before we turn to the Lord's word. Father, you know, it seems to me that this passage is so timely that it's probably going to be uncomfortable. That it's definitely what we Christians need to hear right now, and that it also certainly is what our whole world needs to hear. Lord, would you help us to take this passage and see its proper application, both in our present situation? but then also, Lord, in all areas of life, help us not to apply it too narrowly. Definitely help us not to let ourselves off the hook if we don't see how we're maybe caught up in a particular battle right now. I know, Lord, that your word has confronted me in my own life this week as I've studied John 18 and my attitudes and interactions. Lord, I'm praying that you would find today that as we hear your voice, we would be a people who do not harden our hearts in rebellion to you, and that is so easy for us to do. But that instead, God, you'd find us to be soft towards you, ready and willing and desirous of being conformed to the likeness of your Son. And it's in his precious name we pray, amen. Follow along in your Bibles with me as I read from John chapter 18, Verses 1 to 14. It says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it you want?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied. "'I am he,' Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, "'I am he,' they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, "'Who is it you want?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they said. Jesus answered, "'I told you that I am he.'" If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus they bound him and brought him first to annas who was the father-in-law of caiaphas the high priest that year caiaphas was the one who had advised the jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people well the first thing i want you to notice about the character of jesus in john chapter 18 is his self-control Specifically, that Jesus reserves his power for the Father's purposes. Like what happens here in the garden on this night isn't because Jesus was somehow powerless to stop it. This isn't the story of some sad martyr being dragged away by the powers that be. No, what happens here on this night in John 18 is the result of Jesus' self-control. Jesus reserves his power for the Father's purposes. Did you happen to sort of get a feel for the scene as it's playing out here in John 18? It's nighttime, and Jesus and the disciples have gone into what was almost certainly a garden with walls around it, and it was a place where they would have grown olives and then pressed them and made olive oil. Verse 2 tells us it was a little bit of a favorite spot. For Jesus and the disciples. So you could picture perhaps going to a favorite coffee shop or maybe a park that you and a friend love to get together at and where you find spiritual refreshment and encouragement. It's that kind of place, that kind of intimacy. Judas knows about the spot because, of course, he's been an insider. He's been one of them. He's been there with them on many different occasions. And then in verse 3, he shows up leading a detachment of soldiers representing the powers of Rome leading a group that's been sent from the high priests and the priests and the religious officials representing the powers of the Sanhedrin. And then, of course, Judas himself, who you'll remember in John 13, has been possessed by Satan by this point in time. He's representing the powers of hell. And as this whole thing shapes up, This crowd comes into the garden where Jesus and the disciples are, and we see this crowd that's got Jesus and the eleven badly outnumbered, outarmed, cornered, and they got nothing but bad intentions. You see the way it's shaping up, then, don't you? We're looking at it like, wow, there is like a clash of powers that's about to happen here. So here's the question Who's got the power in this scene? Whose side does the balance of power tilt towards even perhaps? Well, you might say, that kind of depends, I guess. Uh, At first blush, you might look at this and say, "Yeah, it kind of looks like Judas and the Roman military and the Sanhedrin have the power, and they do, after all, arrest Jesus, take him away in what would have been the ancient equivalent of handcuffs in verse 12. But then, of course, if you're reading carefully, you might realize there's an awful lot going on here more than meets the eye. Right? For example, verse 4 says that Jesus knows all that's going to happen to him. That's a way of reminding us that Jesus has divine foreknowledge. He's omniscient. He knows what only God could possibly know. And then something really puzzling plays out in verses 4 to 6. Did you catch it? Let your eyes glance over the passage. The posse shows up, Jesus goes out, and meets them, says, who is it you want? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he, he. And all of a sudden, they all recoil from him and fall to the ground. And then it's as though maybe as they're dusting themselves off and getting themselves back up off the ground, he says to them again, now who is it you want? Now we ought to ask ourselves, what on earth just happened there? Shouldn't we? How does that work? How does this great crowd of Jesus' armed enemies end up driven back and laid out on their backsides in front of him? I would suggest to you that what Jesus has just done is given us the tiniest whisper of a hint of the kind of power and glory that is possessed by his divine name, the I Am. Now, our English translations tend to obscure it a little bit here. Because when the posse says they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus answers them, not actually quite with three words, it's with two words. In the Greek, it's ego, I, me. Ego, I, me, it just literally means, not not quite exactly I am he, literally it's I am. On the one hand, in the Greek, that's as benign and harmless as Jesus simply saying, oh, that's me, I'm him. But on the other hand, If we know our Bibles well, we would remember that in Exodus chapter 3, when God sends Moses back into Egypt to see the Israelites set free, Moses says to God, God, who should I tell them sent me? What should I tell them your name is? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. You go and tell them I am sent you to them. Seven times over in the Gospel of John, Jesus has made statements like, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the vine and so on and so forth. But here on this occasion, without qualification or limitation in any sort of way, Jesus speaks the words, I am. By the way, it's not the first time he's done that. John 8, he does it too, but on this occasion, when he speaks those words, it's like a sliver of his power and his glory comes breaking through, driving his enemies backwards, and knocking them flat on their can. St. Augustine said, with no other weapon than his own solitary voice, uttering the words, I am, he knocked down, repelled, and rendered helpless that great crowd. What will he do? When he comes as judge, who did this when giving himself up to be judged. What will his power be like when he comes to reign, who did this when he came to die? So let me ask you the question again. Who's got the power in this scene as it gets set to play out? That's obvious now, isn't it? It's Jesus. Jesus. All power and authority belongs to Jesus. It's not even close. Follow-up question then. Why would he let them arrest him? Why would he let them take him away so that he has to go to the cross? Well, the answer, there's a number of reasons here. We'll see some of them as we go. But the answer in this moment I want you to realize is it's because Jesus has the character trait of self-control. He does not use his power in ways that might indulge his own desires. He doesn't use his power selfishly. Rather, he reserves his power for the Father's purposes. Now, that kind of character trait isn't common, is it? That's not typical human nature. What's typical of us, especially when we feel like we're under attack, is to muster up every ounce of power we think we can find in order to serve ourselves and maybe serve our friends. I'm leaving the script here for a second, but that's exactly what's transpired in our nation's capital over the last couple of weeks. All sides mustering up whatever power they can in order to serve their purpose. Now, ironically, both sides seem to think they're serving our country in the way that's best. Back to the script though, this happens all the time in life. We muster up whatever power we can to serve our own purposes. So imagine you've got a supervisor that's been picking on you at work. What do you do? You muster up whatever power you can. You say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to my union or I'm going to HR and I'm going to stick it to this guy. Or you've got a neighbor who's driving you crazy and around the bend. You say to yourself, I got his number. I know how to get them back. Where you find out somebody has been smearing your name, talking smack about you, speaking slanderously, what do you do? You make sure you get the last word and the last laugh. Friends, at times like that, when we're hard-pressed and under attack, the kind of character that can come pouring out of us can be downright ugly, can't it? Jesus is not like that. His character is is exquisite and even in the garden of his own agony as he's being betrayed and arrested by tyrannical powers and taken away to what he knows will be an unfair trial and to be tortured and crucified even in this moment Jesus does not use his power in ways that are self-indulgent he uses his power in a way that is entirely reserved for the father's purposes Now, if your faith is in Jesus, then that means Jesus lives in you, and he's looking to conform you to his character. So if then our faith is in Jesus, when we find ourselves under attack and hard-pressed and feeling like there's tyrannical powers and all kinds of things like this going on in our lives, shouldn't it be the character of Christ that gets squeezed out of us? Jesus has given us all various forms of power, but if we're going to be like Him, we're going to learn to reserve that power for the Father's purposes and those purposes alone. There's a second thing in our passage that I want you to notice about the character of Jesus, and that is that He is long-suffering. Specifically, that Jesus submits His will to the suffering that He's been assigned. That's what's going on here we're going to see that Jesus is taking His desire and His will, and He's looking to align it entirely with the Father's plan for Him, even when that plan includes great suffering. Jesus is long-suffering. He submits His will to the kind of suffering that He's been assigned. Now, that idea comes out for us in verses 10 and 11, so take a look there. It says, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear, his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Easiest thing in the world to do in a moment like this is to act like Peter, isn't it? Lash out at those who seem like they're attacking us. I'm sure that Peter thought in this moment that the thing he was doing was admirable, heroic, motivated by love. Of course he does. Now, there may be times, perhaps, where this type of response could be admirable. But we need to recognize that we live in a culture that tends to celebrate things like insubordination, like resistance and defiance, which means since we're always being formed by our culture if we're not careful, we need to understand that it is quite likely, highly likely, that we think of this kind of response as admirable and heroic and praiseworthy far more often than our Father does. We need to be very careful about checking our hearts any time that we find ourselves resisting authority rather than submitting to it. Now, in John 18... Jesus rebukes a probably well-meaning, certainly misguided Peter who does not yet seem to really understand the character of his Lord. He says to him, put your sword away, Peter. The thing that Jesus is determined to do follows straight after that in verse 11, He says he's determined to drink this cup that's been assigned to him. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, what do you think that that cup is referring to? Probably not a literal cup. Wouldn't you agree? If we did a little bit of a word study on that word cup, we would find out that in biblical imagery, the word cup is often used as a metaphor. And it refers to what you might call our lot in life. You might call it the sorts of uh, things, the, uh, maybe our, our divine appointments, the kinds of things in our lives that our sovereign God has assigned to us. Now, your cup, biblically speaking, can be, have good things pouring out of it rich, rich blessings. You know this. Think of Psalm chapter 23 You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So, you know, sometimes our cup can refer to good things that God has assigned to us. But other times, our cup can refer to sufferings that have been assigned to us. And in the case of Jesus, that's exactly what's happening here. He knows his cup is a cup of severe suffering. He knows it's one of taking a cross upon his shoulders, of being mocked and ridiculed and scorned by the very people that he came to lay his life down for and save. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptic gospels as we call them, Jesus is found praying, Father, in this very same garden, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You see what he's doing then in verse 11? He's living out that prayer. He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is long-suffering. Jesus is submitting His will to the kind of suffering that the Father has assigned to Him. Now, of course, He could have overthrown the tyrannical powers. Of course, He could have fought and won and received everything He rightly deserves and be worshipped as the King of kings and Lord of lords in this moment. Of course, he could have, if he had a wanted, sidestepped, it escaped, gotten away so he wouldn't have to face this suffering. But Jesus had the wisdom to understand when his suffering had been assigned to him by the Father. He had the trust to believe that the Father would use it for great good, and he had the strength, and it does take strength, friends, to make sure that he endured this suffering. Jesus came to submit to a cross of great purpose, but of great suffering. In Luke 9, Jesus then turns to us, and he says to us, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Have you ever heard the names Adoniram and Ann Judson? Put your hand up if you've heard those names before. Adoniram and Ann Judson. Oh, yeah, good. Good few of you. There's a a number of great biographies written about the Judsons. One is called To the Golden Shore. I haven't read that one yet. I hear it's absolutely fantastic. The one that I read is called Ann Judson, A Missionary Life for Burma. The Judsons have the distinction of being the first Ever couple sent out onto the mission field, they took the gospel of Jesus in the early 1800s to the people of Burma. And their life was a cup of great suffering. I could list all kinds of things that the Judsons suffered in their mission, but let me just give you a few examples. At one point, the Burmese did not trust the Judsons, and they thought that the Judsons were probably spies. So they arrested Adoniram, and they threw him in a prison of such deplorable conditions that it was known as the death prison. Very few people ever survived it. Adoniram had to live there for two whole years, and going day after day to try to provide for his needs as he languished. They faced chronic, oftentimes severe, illness, which certainly wasn't helped by all the stress that they were under or by the foreign climate that they had chosen to place themselves in. The Judsons had three children born to them while they were on the mission field. All of them died in infancy. Anne herself, some 18 months after the third child was born, Maria, when Maria was 18 months old, Anne became so ill that she uh, succumbed to her illness and died as well, leaving Adoniram alone to raise 18-month-old Maria in Burma until Maria died six months after that. Imagine the suffering. Now we could say to ourselves, why did they endure that? Why didn't they just get on a boat and come home? That's all it would have taken to have sidestepped so much of this suffering. They endured it because they had seen the beauty of the character of the one who was willing to submit to his own assigned suffering and go to the cross so that they could be saved. And so following after him, they picked up their own cross and followed suit. At one point, Adoniram said this, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Now, there are many rich blessings that we receive from the cup of the Lord. Not everything that is our assigned cup in life is all suffering. There's blessings too. So we're going to need the wisdom to know when a suffering we're facing is a kind of suffering that the Lord might be saying to us, hey, work to alleviate this one. And when the kind of suffering we're facing is the kind that the Lord says, this has been assigned to you, you need to endure it. Remember something, though, friends. Our first instinct is always going to be to try to avoid suffering. That's human nature. Run from it, flee from it, sidestep it, fight back against it. That is like our fleshly impulse. We are primed and ready to pull a Peter, fight or flight. That's going to be our instinct. Which means then, if we are going to have the kind of character of our Savior, we're going to need to have great wisdom to be constantly turning to the Lord as we face suffering and saying, God, is this assigned to me? And if so, then to turn to Him and say, I need the character of Jesus, that you would make me someone who is long-suffering, that would be willing to submit to the suffering that's been assigned to me, to trust you, that you'll do something good with it. So here we got Jesus then in his moment of great agony in this garden where he's being betrayed and arrested and and treated in terrible ways. And yet what we're seeing is this beautiful, uncommon character pouring out of him. We're seeing incredible self-control, not using his power for anything other than the Father's purposes. We're seeing incredible long-suffering saying, I know I've been assigned this, and it's necessary, and I'm going to endure it. And there's a third thing about Jesus' character I want you to see here, and it has to do with a trade that he offers to us. Any good at making trades? I got a little bit of a mixed track record. Like the time when I was a little kid and my babysitters bought me this gift, it was like this super cool army man, and he had all this paraphernalia hanging off of him and everything, and an older neighbor kid saw him, and he convinced me to trade him for this lame-o toy, trinket of a toy that he had. That was a bad trade. I lost big time. I have made some good ones. Like when I used to sometimes trade out of my lunch bag, and I'd get something like a Joe Louie in return for something like a banana, that was a good trade. I've made some great ones. Like when I was 18 years old and I got my hands on an Oldsmobile station wagon with beaver paneling down the sides, and I managed to trade that for a 1981 Chevy Monte Carlo with a 400 small block and a four-barrel carb. That was a good trade. Best trade I ever made, though, is one that no one in their right mind would make. If it were not for profound love, it's the day I traded Jesus' life for mine. That's the third thing I want you to see about the character of Jesus in John 18 it's love. Jesus offers his life as a substitute for ours. Jesus is offering a trade. He's willing to lay his life down so that those that he loves might be set free and saved. Jesus possesses the character of love. Jesus offers his life for ours. Look with me. We'll see it first in verses 7 to 9. The crowd comes and Jesus says, that he's, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men Go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now, that's a pretty admirable thing. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus has offered to give himself up so that the disciples can go free. Wouldn't the world be a way better place if there was a lot more of this kind of love? If you had chances to receive it and chances to give it, it's a really admirable thing. And had Jesus not done this, it is quite likely the disciples would have been arrested with him and entirely possible they all would have been executed alongside him. But Jesus essentially stands in the gap. He says, let's make a trade. I'll let you take me. You let them go free. That's a good trade if you're one of those disciples, isn't it? I bet you they never forgot that all the days of their life. The love of Jesus displayed in the garden as he offers himself up so that they can be set free. But Jesus did not come to simply save his disciples from being arrested This love of Jesus that's willing to offer his life as a substitute for ours is is just what we're seeing with the arrest is just a sign of a much greater thing that John is continuously pointing to. And the gospel of John does not want us to forget that in this moment. It wants us to know the bigger picture of what's going on, which is why John in this moment reminds us of something Caiaphas had said way back in John 11. You remember Caiaphas? He's the high priest in this moment. He's not really a good high priest, he's not a godly man, and he sure does not look to Jesus as the Savior or Lord, but one of the great things I love about John's gospel is it's full of ironies. And sometimes it has the irony of somebody speaking far better than they realize in that moment of time. And Caiaphas is a perfect example of that. Back in John chapter 11, verse 49, the Sanhedrin has been assembled. They're trying to decide what on earth they're going to do with this conundrum whose name is Jesus. That's a big problem to them, they think. And then it says, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. John wants us to remember that, and so he reminds us here in verse 14. Hey, he goes to see Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. By the way, remember who Caiaphas is. He's the guy who said it'd be good if one man died in the place of others. What we're seeing, in other words of the character of Jesus here is the kind of love that came to lay his life down that we might be saved and set free from our sins. The kind of love that dies in the place of the people so that they could be forgiven. The Bible says very clearly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us. And it goes on to say very clearly that the wage of that sin is an eternal death sentence. Now that means that when Jesus returns and he comes as the rightful judge, as he's promised he would, and we see him in his glory and his holiness and his righteousness and all of his justice, we are going to realize it's true. What we deserve for our sin is a death sentence for the ways that we have acted against God. That's not mean. That's not cruel. Jesus does not possess that kind of character. We see it here. Jesus came to warn us of that because he knew it was a suffering that we could not possibly bear up under. And so he came also to warn us and to bring us good news. To say there's good news. God so loves the world that he sent his only son. Jesus came as the son to stand in the gap and say a trade can be made here. Let my life stand in the place of yours, he says. Let me go to the cross on your behalf. Let me die the death you deserve to die. Let me bear the wrath of God for your sins so that you can be forgiven and you can be saved and set free. The Son of God, the creator of the world, the sinless one, dying in the place of all of those sinful creatures who dared to trust Him and to believe that He really is the Son of God, that He really did die in our place so that we could be forgiven and live. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down their life for their friends. What we're seeing in John 18 is that love. Jesus offers His life as a substitute for ours. Christians, Oh, that we would be a people who are so filled up with our Savior that it would be the character of Christ that comes pouring out of us. Doesn't our nation need that right now? Don't we need that right now? Oh, that we would be a people that are so turning towards our Savior and so filled with Him that we're conformed more and more day by day to the likeness of our Lord so that when we are attacked and hard-pressed and slighted and persecuted and under great pressure, it would be Jesus that would come pouring out from within us. If nothing ever came out of a person that wasn't in there to begin with, and Jesus lives in us, that it would be him that comes out. So that we would be a people who would say, I won't use whatever power God has given to me to self-indulge and for selfish purposes, I will ensure that I will reserve its use for the Father's purposes. So that we would be a kind of people that would say, I'm going to need, Lord, the wisdom to understand when a certain suffering, you would say, go ahead and try to relieve it. Or a certain suffering, you'd say, this has been assigned to you. You're going to need to trust me and bear up under it. And that then we would have the long-suffering strength of Jesus to be able to then submit our will to the suffering we've been assigned. Oh, that we would be a kind of people that would be willing to lay down our lives in love if necessary so that others could hear the good news of Jesus, that they might have a chance to turn to Him and believe and be saved. Isn't the character of Jesus just so extraordinarily beautiful? that's what I want to come shining out of me in my best moments and in my hardest hardest ones. I do want to take a moment and just speak to those who, you might be here today and you say, I'm not really too sure what I think about Jesus yet. And I just want to appeal to you for a second here. Would you just ask yourself the question, why would Jesus let them do this to him in John 18? Why would he let them arrest him when he knows he's being taken away to be crucified. It's not weakness. We see that he's got all the power in the world here. It's not passivity. Take a closer look at the passage. He's the initiator, actually. He's the one calling the shots. And it's not insanity. Even people who don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God would still say today his teaching is some of the greatest teaching the world has ever known So if it's not weakness and it's not passivity and it's not insanity, why on earth would He let them do this to Him? The answer is it's love. It's His love for you. You're the object of His love. And He's laying down His life here so that if you would turn to Him in faith and believe He's the Son of God... And believe he came to pay for your sins. That you would be forgiven. Your lives would trade with one another. You would be so tied to him that then you would be forgiven and be able to be brought to God. Will you trust him? Will you love him in return? Would you allow today to be the day that you say, I'm going to take him up on this trade. His life for mine. Let me close this in prayer. Father, your word is most certainly living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, dividing spirit and soul, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Lord, I know that as your word has gone to work in my life this week, I've been weighed and found wanting. So often, possessing a character that does not look much at all like my Savior. But Lord, I and all of those who have turned to Jesus in faith, turn to you and say, God, we have one plea. It's that Jesus died for us. He's died in our place so that we're forgiven and that now he lives within us. And we pray, Lord, would you make it so that his character would be formed in us more and more, that we might be conformed to the glory of the Son. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning whose faith is in Jesus, that maybe are pushing back and resisting your word in their life right now. And and it is so easy for us to do that, to excuse ourselves. You, God, our good Heavenly Father, know best how to deal with us in moments like that. And I pray, Lord, that you would in your goodness. And, Lord, I pray for those whose faith is in you that would say, your word has cut them, actually. Lord, I ask that you would meet them there in your grace and your mercy as you've done for me that you would bind them together, that you would help them to change course, that you would help them to trust in the name of Jesus and that they would look to him to be formed in them. And then finally, Lord, I pray for those who are here or who are listening online who have been wrestling through with the question of what to do with Jesus. Lord, would you make today the day that they have the strength and the courage to turn to him in faith, to trust that he really is your son, that he really did come to die in our place so that we could be forgiven and made right with you and so that by faith in him, we could be with you forever. I pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name. Amen.